What a great show today. Amazing. Um, mm, okay, we'll get to that in a second. We, uh, we do not have time today to go into feedback, but we've gotten some amazing feedback that has been helpful, interesting, has made us feel really good. And, you know, one thing I would love to do is just connect. I'd love to have Oral Argument Con where we connect all our listeners together because oh, you're such awesome so people. Good. Uh, until we can do that, though, until we, we, we are going to do our second annual call-out show. And we're going to record this next week, I think December 30th, the day before New Year's Eve. There aren't 31. So, are there 30 days? So in Wednesday. December? 30 days, half, 31 days, half December. Is that how it goes? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know. Boy. I don't, is there something like with your knuckles where you go yes. in between the knuckles to figure out whether? I don't know. There, um, there's no issue so bad it can't be made worse by Christian's poetry. Boy. <laughs> well, last week we mentioned on the show that we want to get listeners involved in a show about uh, – how various things in media have affected your either view of law, inspired you in law, made you angry, made you, you know, whatever, have had some influence or you think they were especially uh, instructive for thinking about right. law and policy and society. And we mentioned like Battlestar Galactica. We mentioned uh, uh, My Cousin Benny. We mentioned the Serial Podcast. I think that's how it originally came up. Could be a novel, could be a song, could be a painting, could be a sculpture. It could be, yeah. We just, and we want to hear from you. Like what, what inspires you in thinking through the kinds of issues we talk about on this show or issues we haven't mentioned yet. So, uh, we're going to do that call out show, which means that we want to hear from you if you want to be on the show. And so, so that we can call you. Yeah. So you can either email us at oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com or respond to our calls for this on social media, which probably will ask you to email us. I think that's how we're going to do it. But I think we're going to set aside a block of time on December 30th uh, where we will call you via Skype or on your cell phone or, or, or even landline. And record a few minutes of conversation. And record a few minutes. And it's totally, you know, if you're not ha- – you know, if you – get into it and you're like, yeah, this is not, we, we didn't have to be there. Have no fear. Like everyone always thinks that they're going to, they're going to be afraid to be on or you'll be great. You'll be great. So, um, uh, if you've got an idea for, for something that's inspired you like that, then get in touch with us and we will call you and we'll set up a time, um, to, to do that. And we'll, there'll be more information about that. Um, if you email us or, or maybe I might put out some more information about that, Okay, but, uh, so so if you're with family or you're traveling, that doesn't matter because we can call you on your cell phone at a certain time and it'll only take a few minutes and you'll be on the show and we would love to hear from you guys, especially uh, – you know who I'd love to hear from in particular? Who? Who we haven't heard from in a while? Who? Listener Adam. Mm. We haven't heard from him since you told him his idea was ridiculous. Since you treated him like you treat me, we haven't heard from him. Mm. Oops. <laughs> I hope you're doing great. Listener Bunny, boy, it'd be great to get her on the show. Yeah. I mean – Listener uh, Asher. Listener Paul up in Canada. Basically, anybody who has sent us whiskey should be on the show. Totally. <laughs> Listener Asher, yes, who... who uh, we want to uh, dance the whiskey tango. Oh, man. There are so many... If we didn't mention your name, it's not because you're not near and dear to our heart. You know, Listener Cameron, Listener David. I've got all these people who would be fantastic on the yeah. show. So we would love to have you. And we, if you've never heard from us before, or if we've never heard from you before, what a great chance. Right. Okay. So anyway, we're going to put that out there. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And now on with the show. Okay, I think we're here now. Technical difficulties. Can you edit all that out? I, I'm just, I restarted everything. Oh, okay, cool. So, so, we, so we don't know who our guest is again. We st- yeah, that's right. We're gonna- it's like a time machine. It is like a time machine. This is, um, uh, so this is our Christmas miracle episode. Because as we, it, you, can't do, you can't go back again, can you? <laughs> you really can't. We already <laughs> made the joke about how Steve Vladek is a Christmas miracle if he shows up on a podcast on right. Christmas, even though... Is you know, um, Steve, you're Jewish. I once I, thought I, I'm a Jewish kid from Manhattan, right? So Christmas <laughs> is sort of a, a you know when you when you eat Chinese food and go to the movies. Yes, 
I, I, I thought that there was nothing worse than explaining a joke. Right. Uh, and it turns out, it turns out I was wrong. What, what is worse than doing it um, again? E- e- explaining your repetition of a joke. Oh, yeah. So oh, well. This episode is already one out of four stars, right? <laughs> <laughs> but because we have Steve, it's about to skyrocket to the, to the top of the rankings, right? To a, to a star and a half. <laughs> yes. I'm getting windburned from the way we're zooming. Mm. Um, now, so, what, yes. what I wanted to ask about and what we started to talk about before our, our technical difficulties set in, you know, you know what actually is worse than explaining what already happened in a joke? Mm. Talking about your technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> but we're, so we're going to press ahead. But um, so there have been a lot of changes in your life, Steve. Uh, two, two, two ones of note. So my, my wife, Karen, and I are expecting our first kid, um, a girl. Uh, in about four weeks on January 22nd. Um, and then not long thereafter, we're decamping for Texas because um, I'm going to be joining the faculty at the University of Texas as of next summer. So, you know, new baby, new town, but otherwise, same old us. Well, there's, <laughs> as a parent, there's nothing kind of same old. There's old, <laughs> old is there. <laughs> that, that only gets worse. Same, well, you know, things are always yeah, no, changing. I mean, our our two year old pug, Roxy, is very distraught about. I think both of these episodes, but mm. I think the baby more than the move. We should just dive right in, right? We should. So there's this. So this is of all those of you who have been clamoring for more federal court stuff. Mm. We're about to get into it in a big way, and it's a case that seems really complicated, but you strip it down to its kind of bolts. If you if you scrape off the rust, the layer of of jargon and and rust and stuff, it's actually not that. Difficult. Some barnacles. It's a question of what the rules should be for which court should hear what when. Um, sure. At that level of abstraction. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think it, it is that combined with a question of, you know, which Supreme Court decisions should criminal prisoners be able to benefit from, even if they've already exhausted every potential appeal. Um, and so it's when you add those two things together that you get the mush that is the, the, the current fight in the Supreme Court. Um, over the the retroactive effect of of the court's decision from last June in this case called Johnson. Can I can I interject for the because I know if we've got listeners who aren't lawyers and even listeners who are who who might not have focused on this in a long time. Um, I think it's worth pointing out. And Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but in federal criminal law, uh, let's say you get convicted, you have your initial appeal, that goes to the end of the process. Uh, your case is over on direct review. But in the federal system, you can use habeas corpus to make a collateral attack on the federal proceeding, right? In other words, you don't have to be a state prisoner to make a habeas claim in federal court that collaterally attacks your conviction. Is that right? Um, that's basically right, Joe. I think that the only place where people get tripped up is the terminology is a little awkward. So um, in the fe- if, you're, if you're convicted in a federal trial court, say the Northern District of Georgia, um, of a federal crime, it, it, it is basically habeas, but it's actually technically called a motion for post-conviction relief um, because Congress created this alternative to habeas um, that's codified at 28 U.S.C. 2255. But before we get totally lost in the details, calling it habeas is fine, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and and that's the th- that um, codification of twenty two fifty five is the thing that Congress noodled with in the EDPA statute um, to curb, uh, among other things, people filing multiple petitions for review on, col- on to make collateral attacks. Right. That, that that's right, Joe, and it goes even broader because Congress messed with 
both federal and state prisoners. 2254 um, and 2255. Correct. Um, and 2244. And so, so the way I like to tell the story is, um, you know, before 1996, the basic rules were all judge-made. Um, and the basic rule was um, you could get one meaningful um, post-conviction collateral case, um, whether it was habeas or 2255. If you were a federal or a state prisoner, you would get like one meaningful bite at the apple um, after your conviction and direct appeal had gone final. All um, the way all the way to the Supreme Court if you had a federal issue. So it's all you're, you're kind of done with, with what most people would conceive of as – you know, your trial and your appeals. And now you're in jail and you say, you know what? I think something unconstitutional. I'm here unconstitutionally because something went wrong in my yep. or, or there's something. And-, and it wasn't taken care of in the first appeal. Right. That's like, right. like, I think one, one thing that's helpful to think about is why, like for, for again, for people who haven't focused on this or don't focus on this on a regular basis, I don't think it's immediately obvious why you, you would need to have a anything other than your direct appeal from your conviction. And so it's helpful to point out, like, what things could people be complaining about or that could happen that would cause them to need to make this collateral attack on their criminal conviction? So in other words, it's not a condition of confinement that they're complaining about. We understand that's not an attack on the conviction. It's a complaint about how you're being imprisoned. That's a different thing, which we've talked about before, but that's not this. No, and, and I think, and there are four classic examples um, of the kind of claim that you can that 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 you might not have had a meaningful chance to bring and during the trial or on your direct appeal that are especially ripe for post conviction review through habeas. Um, the first and the most obvious is that you had bad lawyering, so ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, the second is that the prosecution failed to disclose exculpatory or potentially exculpatory evidence, what we call a Brady claim which oftentimes does not come to light until some years later. Mm. Um, the third is new facts. So, for example, all the witnesses recanted or someone else was arrested whose DNA matches the, the crime scene or something like that. And the fourth and the one that's really at the heart of the current fight is when the Supreme Court, after your direct appeal has gone final, hands down a new decision um, that articulates a new constitutional rule that had it applied to your case would have likely uh, produced your acquittal or at the very least a different sentence. So, so you're in jail. And you read in the newspaper that that the Supreme Court has struck down a statute in a case with another criminal uh, with another prisoner uh, who is now not a criminal anymore because they struck down the statute under which he or she was convicted. You know, maybe it's a statute uh, making it illegal to criticize the president. And the and 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 maybe you had done that. Maybe you're in jail because you did that. <laughs> and you and and this and the Supreme Court strikes down that statute as a, as uh, as violative of the First Amendment, which it obviously is. And then you say, well, wait a minute, I'm in jail and uh, I've already exhausted my appeals. What can I do? And you say, I'm in jail unconstitutionally because there's no valid law which uh, justifies my continued confinement. And And let's make it an easy case because it's literally the only reason you're in jail. That's the only like, reason there's not, you weren't convicted of multiple things. There's no other explanation for your being in the prison other than this. Right. right. And, and so the question is, you know, is that. Is, is that a so, new rule of constitutional law? Is it is the Supreme Court just enforcing an old rule? Did you have a chance to attack it before? Um, and, and how should we deal with the fact that now the Supreme Court has said something, which if you had said it, it like if you had argued it, if that had been your case, you wouldn't be in prison right now. And so should you know, I, I, my example is a little bit bad for this case, but because it's an example of something where the Supreme Court is applying a rule. So that's the been deeper thing that the deeper thing that's in here that makes this. Um, that transcends criminal law, but but seems especially pressing in criminal law, is 
um, the problem of retroactivity and the problem of how do we think about the court reaching a legal holding about a constitutional constraint today, um, the realists in us might say, well, that that's what the Constitution means now, going forward. Um, what do we do with the fact that we might be tempted to say on any number of grounds, that's what it's always meant? Right. Um, in the sense that that prisoner, if he had raised the issue before, could have produced the same utterance by the court. Right. Yeah, yeah. So let's. Why don't we do? That's theoretically quite complex. Yeah. Actually. So let's let's set aside the jurisprudential question about what it means whether we've always been at war with Eurasia or Oceania, right? And this is the one we've dealt with before. And let's that because I do want to come back to that maybe if we if we have time. Um, but let's take like Gideon versus Wainwright. Let's suppose we're in the world before Gideon versus Wainwright. I'm in jail. I didn't have a lawyer appointed to me and I'm and, and I'm poor. I couldn't have afforded one. I'm in jail. I didn't have a lawyer, and and I have some claim that if I'd had one, I would have had better lawyering. I might not be in jail. But Christian, and, but Christian, let's yeah. say you were convicted in 1922. So you've been in jail for 40 years. At okay, the time Gideon's decided. Yeah, right. And so, okay. so, so the question is, right? How is a court supposed to retroactively assess the fairness of a proceeding that happened 40 some odd years ago, based on a rule they just handed down for the first time yesterday? Right. And, and so this is why it's. I think when you're thinking about what the law should be. You know, I always encourage my students to kind of role play and put yourself in the position of various institutional actors. And so if you think about retroactivity, one way of thinking about it is, well, what's the right doctrine? And you try to think of what are the rules and try to identify them. But if you put yourself in the role of the of a Supreme Court justice handing down a rule of constitutional law, one of the things you're going to be thinking about is, boy, if I if I require that every felony um, uh, prosecution uh, trigger the right to counsel, uh, to the right to paid, the right to uh, state provided counsel if you can't afford one. What is that going to do to all of the people now in jail who didn't have that? And so basically, I'm making it at the same time I'm handing down a new rule, and especially as I'm handing down a rule about the re- retroactivity of that rule, I'm making a decision about the use of state resources. Right sure. to re-adjudicate a bunch of claims, and, and that's that going to be a balance. And, 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 you know? and I think that yeah. explains perfectly um, why the Supreme Court handed down um, the decision that's uh, in 1989 that basically defined the landscape here called Teague versus Lane. Right. Um, so Teague, I mean, there are two critical moments in our story. The first is 1989 when the court hands down Teague. And I'll, let me say a bit about what Teague said. And then the second is 96 when Congress passes EDPA, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Right. Um, so Teague, based on exactly what you just said, Teague tries to draw a bright line between what the court basically calls procedural claims and substantive claims. Um, and the basic rule Teague articulates, although it causes all kinds of headaches at the margins, <laughs> um, is that a substantive rule, which is to say a new rule of constitutional law that goes to the unconstitutionality of the statute you are convicted under, or that goes to the sort of invalidity of the primary conduct that you're in jail for, um, if it's substantive, you ought to be able to benefit from it no matter what. Um, and so even if it's 50 years down the road, if you're sitting in jail because you were vi- you violated Virginia's anti-miscegenation statute, you, you, know, you got married interracially, um, 
after the Supreme Court decides love him, you can't be in jail anymore, no matter no matter how many habeas petitions you've previously filed. And that, um, and that means that you'll need to, because you are in prison, right. you will need to go to court and you will need to ask the court, please let me out of prison. The only reason I'm in here is an unconstitutional statute. Like correct. There's a, so you, so you have to you're going to have to use habeas. the process. Correct. That, that, that's right. And, and theore- theoretically, and maybe rhetorically, kind of what's going on is that we have this sense that uh, confinement requires a, conti- a, a continual substantive justification, right? Uh, and, and the procedural side about, about which you're you're about to get to goes to our certainty, right? About, about, the, about exactly. the, the, the sort of the fairness of the trial and the epistemological search for truth, right? But but if if it's true that the person uh, uh, violated the statute, then we actually don't, you know, we, that justification is there. And so this first, the first prong of Teague is, are those cases in which that justification has now been found absent. And so there's no continued justification for confinement. Right. And so we don't care about whether the trial is fair or not. Yeah, because um, no, no trial, however fair, could cure the defect, the substantive defect, that this thing cannot be criminalized. No, that's exactly right. And so that's why the court, since even before Teague, has been fairly clear and consistent that any rule that qualifies as substantive can be enforced retroactively, even by prisoners who have exhausted their direct appeals. Now, let me just say, from also from kind of a, a, a realist and again role play perspective, this is a pretty easy one because the expense of re-adjudicating those claims is virtually nil. Um, if 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 we all agree that it's substantive, if we agree, yes. Yeah, so if it's substantive, then you know basically we just vacate all of those convictions. There's not going to be out. a lot of there's not re-adjudication except where the person was convicted of several things at once, and you have to do some resentencing. That's right. At, at most, we're talking resentencing, um, and you know, but 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 the is it substantive is a big question. You know, the Supreme Court has it has a case this term, Montgomery versus Louisiana. That's all about whether the it's 2012 decision in Miller versus Alabama about mandatory juvenile life without parole is substantive. So, you know, it's not always obvious that a, that a new rule is or is not substantive. But when it is, it's actually, it should be, it should be pretty easy to figure out what happens next. But, but, but again, from the social resources side, that's a question that you decide once, right? You in don't, theory. You don't have to decide it. You don't have to decide the right procedure in thousands of cases. So that, that's certainly what Teague thought. I mean, and, and, and we'll get to why EDPA messes that up. Yeah, right, um, right, right. We'll get to the but, second prong. We cut you off before you got to the second prong no, of no, Teague. No, no, but, yeah. I mean, but it's worth unpacking this in order because yeah. I think, it, it, I think it'll, it'll help to explain why EDPA causes such mischief. Um, but before we get to EDPA, so the second part of Teague and the far more controversial part of Teague is that procedural rules, um, so for example, um, rights to examine witnesses for certain things or rights to the discovery of particular kinds of evidence or, you know, rights to kick out particular jurors. Um, or, or, or Gideon versus Wainwright. I mean, the, or Gideon, right. Yeah. The procedural rules are not, are not, and let me underscore the not, generally enforceable retroactively. Um, unless, and this is what the court says in Teague, unless the rule is a watershed rule of criminal justice, <laughs> basically um, a rule that goes to the absolutely core elements of fairness um, in our criminal justice system. They say fundamental and, fairness and accuracy in places, That's right. right. And, and that sounds lovely coming off the tongue. The problem <laughs> is um, that Teague could only identify one example of such a rule in the court's entire history, and that was Gideon. Right. And in the 26 years... Um, since Teague was handed down, the court has not found another one, um, despite being asked over and over and over and over again to recognize that new rules like the Crawford rule about the, about the confrontation clause hmm. or the Padilla rule about um, an immigrant's right to be advised of the deportation consequences of his plea, um, you know, fairly fundamental procedural issues 
the court has has not hesitated to say nope not not watershed there there is no watershed rule of criminal justice other than Gideon so they really meant it when they said that procedural changes um are generally not retroactive that's right because um, only one of them ever has not been that's right. Gideon is the Gideon is the ex- literally the exception that proves the rule. Well, and so now here I want to come in again with kind of the the role play side, and and if you think about why, because I think just you know maybe naively or may, right. maybe just abstractly, much you more think, socially costly think, to know, do this retroactively. If it's right? important, if we say, well, yes, I was going to say, if we think that the Constitution requires a certain procedure, and someone is in prison. Uh, and they didn't get that procedure, and the reason we require that procedure is because it goes to accuracy and it goes to right. fairness. Then, then there's not a great justification for why we shouldn't rerun all those things. Correct. Right? On the other hand, um, if, if we did rerun all of those things, it could get very, very costly. But I, here's the other, the kind of twist on that. I mean, it's obviously more costly to rerun a bunch of trials because of this, right? But on the other hand, if I'm a Supreme Court justice, I'm thinking if I make these cases generally re- retroactive or retroactive in a broad swath of cases, that will be a disincentive on us to use the Constitution to create fairer procedures in the future because every one of those is going to entail huge social costs. Mm. That, right? that's, I think that's certainly true. But I, I think also – and so I think that helps to explain why there is a completely classic split between liberals and conservatives on this question. Um, where the liberals led by Justice Brennan have long been of the view that habeas is not about the fairness of the trial. Habeas is about the legality of the detention. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't matter from that view um, whether the state court did everything it possibly could to give you the fairest trial. If you've got a claim that notwithstanding all of their best efforts, you're still being held unlawfully, you should be allowed to bring it. Right. The the conservative view, which is sort of known in the habeas um, uh, community as the process school, is that basically, you know, habeas is really just a referendum on the trial. Um, And all we're trying to figure out is, did you get a fair trial based on what was understood to be the prevailing norms of fair trials at the time? You know, Justice Jackson's famous quote about the Supreme Court being infallible only because it's final um, was in a habeas case. Mm-hmm. Where his point was, you know, you can't – the habeas is not somehow better than the trial. This is all just a question of checking the underlying process. So this classic divide um, I think has been you know, sort of there in the Supreme Court's habeas jurisprudence since the 1950s and is right in the middle of Teague. And, and you no, see I, this almost I, most, most poignantly in the actual innocence cases and death yep. penalty cases, right, where yep. it's like Scalia is of the view that if – you know, you can be executed even if you are actually innocent. <laughs> as, long as, as long as you're convicted pursuant to a fair trial. Because that's what that's what innocence means, right? Innocence yep. means that you got a trial and you were acquitted. I mean, from a legal standpoint. In terms of the fairness, the, the fairness point for retroactivity, another um, one, one of the aspects of this more socially costly consequence of concluding that uh, a, a procedural rule has to apply retroactively um, is that um, the the fairness and accuracy connection can but the the all of it can get snarled if you try to have another proceeding right because mm-hmm. um in other words at, even as fairness you try to make it more fair in one direction you might make it less fair in the in the sense that it's less accurate some witnesses may have died yep. human memory is fallible some evidence of the, may un, have been destroyed uh, exactly underlying evidence so so you can't you don't get to all jump in a time machine and go back and change only one thing 
That's right. All of it will be potentially less accurate. So if fairness is done in the interest of, among other things, accuracy, right, that might not be the only reason you try Mm -hmm. to create fair rules. There might be a dignitary interest that's separable from accuracy. But to the degree that it's about accuracy, well, that, you know, that horse is now long out of the barn. So you can't. That's right. You can't just assume that if you rerun these procedures, they will be as accurate. Many of them will be less accurate. And that's distinct from issues from considerations of cost or traditional notions of finality. Yeah, right? you state, can think, yeah. but you can think of it as a cost, right? Because yeah. a- having procedures that produce inaccurate results, that's one of the things you're trying to, to do with the way you craft procedure, well, right? Steve, that's, isn't that's that right. a good bridge to the story of, uh, of the entering of Newt Gingrich in the contract with America? Absolutely. So, 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 so this <laughs> This all is a lovely, interesting academic conversation. Um, <laughs> hey. It actually created a relatively workable scheme for about seven years, um, and the, you know where basically leaving aside the fight over procedural rules, there was just no question in the immediate aftermath of Teague that federal or state prisoners could benefit from new substantive rules, no matter how many times they had previously sought relief. Um, then Congress comes along and passes EDPA, and EDPA. Oh, we could do a whole show about that. It's the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. So I think it's – and this is in the wake of Oklahoma City and in the the wake of the contract with with America. Although the longer story is that this bill had basically been sitting in a drawer for 25 years. Yeah. um, And that it was just the the aftermath of the contract with America in Oklahoma City was the perfect time to, quote, unquote, get tough on, you know, federal and state prisoners. And this um, is uh, this is after Clinton's uh, cops on the beat. Was it a million cops? Yes. Yeah. Um, so there's this whole move because we are just at the tail end, I think, here of the crime peak, mm-hmm. uh, which, again, may be related to lead, <laughs> may not be. I mean, there's a really there's an interesting thing about that. But yeah. but so there's the nation. I mean, I think it's it's we've got a, yacht, a lot of young listeners, people in college and and others who were not alive or not aware in the early 90s. And, sure. and you know, back when. New York was perceived as this really tough, rough place rather than an amusement park. That's where I grew up. Yeah. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, Steve, right? During during that era, like tough on crime was huge, right? And, and, And there's a now more than everism to this as well. As you, as you say, Steve, when something's sitting in a drawer, um, cause there are some issues where it, basically no matter what happens, an, uh, one elected, an elected official's answer will be, well, now more than ever, comma, right. We need X. And That's you've right. been saying we need X, uh, basically on every occasion of anything of note in that domain. And so n- here was the moment where you could actually get it to happen. And, and 96 is, is a banner year. I mean, so, you know, folks, progressives who are critical of bill clinton point to 1996 as you know the year that he signs edpa the year that he signs the welfare reform statute the year that he signs the prison litigation reform act the year that he signs uh, right the immigration the illegal immigration reform and immigrant responsibility act um right i mean 96 is a banner year for relatively conservative legislation much of which is aimed at reducing the power of the courts and i'll just i'll go on record here to say that most of those uh, almost all those reforms were um a failure <laughs> and we've been living with a legacy of these things of how to you know so irira breaks up families because it cancels 212c relief and all kinds of other things and in ways that don't actually serve conservative interests right and the edpa has been just a snarl of trouble and it's not you know it, anyway i i'd be open yeah, although to, although christian i mean yeah. if the goal if the goal of these statutes at least in some regard was to make it a heck of a lot harder 
for certain kinds of litigants to receive relief from the federal courts. I think in those, in that respect, those statutes were arousing success. Now, well, this is what I, I, what I mean by open to empirical evidence. I mean, so because I haven't, I haven't read these papers, and, and I'm sure they're out there. And so maybe you can tell me about them right now. But uh, so, so I know that. It did, you know, there were a lot of judgments about how you can't bring this now and, and, and the courts of appeals, you know, instead of denying on the merits, you're denying on successive petition grounds. And we'll get to that in just a second when we t- actually talk about what EPA did. Uh, <laughs> but uh, did it actually cut down on the amount of work performed by judges? No, 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 no. And so what I mean by success is it, it did not it did not make judges lives easier, but it did it did change the success rates of the litigation. So caseloads did not really go down precipitously after these statutes. Um, what went down were the percentage of cases in which plaintiffs were winning. And so, you know, there's there's a cynical view of, of this entire statutory scheme as basically not about reducing the pressure on the courts, but about, you know, sort of upping the government's win percentage. And in that regard, I think there's there's conclusive evidence that in the habeas context, in the prison litigation context, in the immigration context, um, the immigration context, I think, took a little longer, but in all three that the statute succeeded. Yeah, well, and of course, these weren't about reducing the workload of the judiciary. That's not how it, it wasn't the Judicial Paper Cut Relief Act. Well, I mean, it was, yeah. it, that, well, that, that it was, was no one's about, intention. But it was, there was little, some of that. It, there was, it was, it, it wasn't a, so much about concern about judges. It was, let's, you know, the courts are clogged with frivolous appeals right. from prisoners, right? And we right. need to cut down on these appeals. And so one measure of success is, are there fewer frivolous appeals? And you would expect to, like, initially the court is just turning these away. And over time, you get fewer things, quote unquote, clogging the courts. But but that's why I was asking. I didn't know that if that actually happened. Instead, we're fighting about different things. And maybe prisoners are losing more. Query whether actually more people are fewer people are getting out of prison, if this is actually having any measurable effect on. I mean, it's it, it certainly by dint of a habeas petition. And and so let's I mean, let's get into what EDPA does. Cause I think yeah, that will help to it. illuminate why this is why this causes trouble. So there EDPA does a lot. And, and I don't want anyone to think that the two things I'm going to focus on are the two things that are, are exclusive. Um, but the two most significant things EDPA does is, first, EDPA mandates um, really substantial deference to state courts in any case in which the constitutional claimant issue was adjudicated by the state court at all. Um, and so basically, you know, the principal provision of EDPA, um, which is codified at 28 U.S.C. 2254 D1, says basically if you're a state prisoner seeking federal habeas relief and you have a constitutional claim that actually was presented to the state court, um, the federal court cannot rule for you just because it thinks the state court was wrong. The federal courts can only rule for you if they're convinced that the state court committed an unreasonable error in its application of clearly established Supreme Court precedent. Basically, I mean, the, the, the way this is cashed out in the case law is the federal court can only rule for you if you can show that no reasonable state court judge should have ruled the way that that state court judge ruled. Um, that's a pretty high bar um, if you have a claim that actually was adjudicated in state court, especially if we consider that the Supreme Court had said adjudicated by state court means it was briefed and then the state court said nothing. <laughs> that counts. Yeah. Um, so, you know, from the unrelated to the, the, the sort of the specific issue with retroactivity, the most important thing EDPA does is it basically destroys de novo review um, of any claim that was presented in the state courts. Um, 
the second thing that it does, and this is what is sort of of, of relevance to the current uh, contretemps, um, is EDPA makes it infinitely harder to bring a second or successive petition. Um, and so what EDPA says is whether you're a state or a federal prisoner, basically the presumption is you cannot bring second or successive petitions, period. And, let, and let's, just, let's just say really clearly what those are. So I'm, 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 I'm in jail, yep. uh, whether or prison, whether federal or state, I think it works the same way. It and, does. And I've already, uh, and I've already been through my appeals and I've already filed a habeas petition, maybe saying, Hey, my counsel on, 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 at trial and on direct appeal was incompetent. So yep. I didn't actually have a lawyer and therefore I should be, and that failed. And then I sit in jail some more and then something else comes along, either a witness recants or there's a new rule of constitutional law or I, a case I didn't recognize. And I bring another one. So, yep. so now I'm bringing a second petition. So that's what I mean by second petition. I'm actually and in doing a context where you, it's not as if you decided strategically not to bring it earlier. It's a new thing. Like oh. a new thing has happened. Well, well, maybe. That's I mean, why you're here with a new well, petition. In the in the hypotheticals, all of the ones you just mentioned, they were new things. I think I think the trope, maybe Steve, your your memory may be better, your your knowledge of the history may be better, but but actually, I think one of the attacks on these successive petitions is that prisoners yeah. were just using. Yeah, but you could have, but Christian, you would have written the statute to say that you that you could have brought, but but failed to. Well, no, in some I, of, and that's not how it's written. The, the justifications given for the statute are maybe different than. How we interpret the well, statute. That's, that's right? important. And, and, but but I, I think, think that, what yeah, one of the ideas though was that prisoners are basically delaying executions mainly, but this applies of course to everybody. Right. And by dragging out the judicial process. And in fact, if if you think about it more broadly, prisoners might actually be able to get negotiate and get settlements uh, because of the prospect of continuing to drag these things out. So the, I, the, the trope was that prisoners will be dragging out litigation by filing petition after petition after petition. And let's, you know, you get one shot at the apple unless it's in one of these exceptions. Right. And that was, that, the, that, that's right. But, but it goes even, and, and so, and so even if you buy the trope, it's worth noting that the statute goes even further. So before you can file a second or successive petition under EDPA, you have to go to the circuit court. Um, and not just a district judge, because part of what the Congress was pissed about was federal district judges having too much power. And so to file a second or successive petition, you first have to go to the circuit court um, and basically ask them for permission. Um, and the permission basically can only be granted if you meet one of four or five specified grounds set out by the statute. For example, new evidence that could not have reasonably been discovered previously, um, a new rule of constitutional law issued by the Supreme Court, um, and so on and so forth. And what's important about that is that not only do you have to get permission from the Court of Appeals, but if they turn you down, you can't appeal. Um, and so basically, there's no appellate check on the Court of Appeals um, denying you permission to bring a second or successive petition for either incorrect reasons or for no reason whatsoever. Um, and that's what's called the gatekeeping provisions of EDPA. And the Supreme Court upholds those provisions in a case called Felker versus Turpin because the court says, yeah, 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 you took away our direct review. But in a really exceptional case, we still have this sort of obscure way to review a really, really problematic case because we still have our own what's called original habeas jurisdiction. And that comes up that ends up mattering in our story. So, but, so the way this plays out, I'm, I'm in uh, say I'm on death row yep. in, in a state and uh, and all the witnesses recant. And there is new evidence that couldn't have been discovered at the time that I'm actually innocent. And so I your think, name is Troy Davis. It, exactly. And, 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 I, and I petitioned for writ of habeas corpus, although I had petitioned before on, on incompetent counsel grounds. And the Court of Appeals turns you down. And the Court of Appeals turns me down. And, and now uh, – and I say, well, wait a minute. This is this 
this is on all fours with the actual uh, right. reasons in the statute. So the, the Court of Appeals made an error here. Yeah. I'm not mm-hmm. just claiming that I disagree legally, but I think they made a true error. And any, even if any reasonable juror would say that they made an error, uh, any reasonable observer would say they made an error. And under the statute, it. you have nowhere to bring that complaint. I have nowhere to bring that complaint. And so the question is – so that raises serious constitutionality concerns about this whole scheme. Because remember, Ed was, just a, concerns Ed was just a statute. Right. That's and, right. And and the answer to that in the case that you mentioned, Steve, is, well, that's – you know, the EDPA says that that's the end of the story. But it's not really the end of the story because you still can bring uh, under uh, – is it 2254? No, it's 2241A. Where you uh, you can bring a writ directly in the Supreme Court, almost as if it were a district court. Um, almost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is the old All Writs Act, right? I mean, that the, the court has the power to issue all, all writs in aid of its jurisdiction. So, Joe, it's, it's right next to the All Writs Act. Yeah, um, but yeah. actually, historically, <laughs> um, dating all the way back to the Judiciary Act of 1789, Congress distinguished between the, all, the Supreme Court's All Writs power um, and its power to issue writs of habeas corpus. Ah. Uh, um, so the all writs power was actually in section 13 of the Judiciary Act of 1789. Habeas is section 14. Um, hence, hence why they're right next to each Based other. Based on custody, right? Based on custody. Um, and, you know, Chief Justice Marshall will say in 1807 um, that there's nothing that even though Marbury famously says, you know, Congress can't expand the court's original jurisdiction, habeas isn't really an exercise of constitutional original jurisdiction, because even though you're starting in the Supreme Court, you're effectively asking the Supreme Court to review a lower court's decision. Um, at the very least, the lower court that committed you to custody in the first place. And so that's why it doesn't raise, that's why, you know, for constitutional purposes, an original writ of habeas corpus is technically appellate and therefore within the court's authority. Oh, that's interesting because, of course, the, the, these are all kinds of fictions in the way we talk about things. Correct. But, right, the, the idea of habeas is that it's actually a civil action, mm, right? It's right. not part of an appeal. It's a separate but civil it's appellate action. That's why it's fact. called collateral. Right. But, but if we really what it is is an appeal in a way, although you know, with new evidence and everything is the kind of thing that you wouldn't normally see. On I mean the appeal. gravamen of the case is the, uh, an offic- the, uh, a wrong by an official – as to yeah. you in, in in another proceeding. Well, but a, a wrong right in a judicial proceeding, and so and so. I mean, there's there's actually a fantastic academic debate um, about what about what authority the lower court proceeding has to be conducted under. Um, that's implicated by these post World War II cases arising out of the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal, um, <laughs> and whether the Supreme Court had constitutional appellate jurisdiction to issue an original writ of habeas corpus vis-a-vis those proceedings. Um, Suffice it to say, that's not a problem in any of the current cases, right? In, in all of the current cases, we're talking about guys who have been convicted by state or federal courts. And so under this ex parte Bowman decision, there's just no question that the Supreme Court has both statutory and constitutional authority to issue habeas relief directly. Um, the problem, as it turns out, is the court just doesn't like to do it and actually has not issued an original writ of habeas corpus since 1925. So so there are two – let's, let's – um... Uh, to turn back to EDPA for just a second to get to the two provisions that I think are key for understanding this yep. uh, train wreck. Um, one is the uh, – there's a one-year period of limitation, Yep. right, uh, to make a um, – um, and, and where, where does that run? I don't have the whole thing. It's a, so, here, so here's the problem. So, so to get to the to, – to sort of to, 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 to peel away the rest of the layers and get to the problem in hand. Yeah. Um, so one of the grounds for a second or successive petition is if you're trying to take advantage of a new rule under Teague. Um, but – the language that Congress passed in the statute is narrower than Teague. And what the language of the statute says is you can get permission from a court. If you've been convicted, if you're in prison, if you've already exhausted one post, if this is your second or successive habeas, 
you can get relief for a new rule of constitutional law only if it has been, quote, made retroactive by the Supreme Court, unquote. Well, here's what it says. If that right has been newly recognized by the Supreme Court and made retroactively applicable to cases on collateral review. Right. Um, and, well, anyway, so there's this case. So do you want to go to Tyler versus Kane? Which Yeah. So the yeah. question is, right. So so that language, the question is, what does it mean to be made retroactively applicable by the Supreme Court? Um, mm. And in the first couple of years after EDPA, Lower court said, listen, you know, made retroactively applicable by the Supreme Court just means, you know, the court said anything that makes it clear that it's retroactive. Um, which, which, which includes Teague versus Lane, right? Which, right. which is the Supreme Court's own stated rule for determining whether a new rule is retroactive. Here's, the, right. here's the problem with that. I mean, the, yeah, the, the problem's rather apparent with that, with that interpretation, which is it, the, 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 very, the, set, the statute also says a, a new rule of constitutional law, right? So it, it, the argument Which is the you language ju- of Teague. But the, and the argument you just made is, well, um, of course, those are retroactive, right? So as soon oh, only, as the, only, no, no, only if they're substantive or if they're watershed rules of criminal procedure. Right. So if the, if the court has made a new rule of constitutional law, um, th- then it's surplus to say, well, the court doesn't need to say it's retroactive. Right. right. It well, will be retroactive by, simply by virtue of being a new rule of constitutional law, given the jurisprudence of Teague well, against e- Lane. Even more, even more. When the, when the Supreme Court decides a case in front of it and makes a new rule of constitutional law, isn't it, does it even have there's – a, there's a sense in which the, the question is, does it even have the power to declare retroactivity in that case because retroactivity is not at issue? Well, so I mean, so so without <laughs> right. without, without going down without going down a dicta versus advisory opinion foxhole. Exactly. Yeah. Let me let me just say if the court if the case is properly before them, they can say whatever the hell they want. It just might not be a holding. Um, but so, that's so where, right. But that that so that gets to Tyler versus Kane. Exactly. No, Thomas, right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. So so Joe, the the le- just just to clarify one thing before we get to Tyler versus Kane. So um, I I think it's certainly true that if the court hands down a new rule that is clearly substantive then by dint of Teague and its progeny, it is clearly retroactive. It is not nearly as clear that a new rule that is procedural is or is not retroactive because there's going to have to be a follow-on case about whether it's a watershed rule or not. Mm-hmm. Um, right? So, so, I think the, so, so that's where I think there's, there's play in the joints okay. on, on whether a new rule is per se retroactive or not. Um, but this is where Tyler comes in. So in Tyler versus Kane. Um, which is decided on the last day of the of the two, October two thousand term of the Supreme Court. This is um, the, this is the Bush versus Gore term, by the way, uh, among others. I mean, yeah. this is a this is a you know fifteen twenty years from now we will be writing books about that term as such because a lot of really interesting stuff happens that term, um, including the the Saint Cyr and Zadvitus immigration cases. Um, but so Tyler versus King, which also comes down the last day of the of the term. Um, the the court basically says five to four um, that a holding of the Supreme Court is, is that basically the case where we are announced the rule is not the case that makes it retroactive. Um, and Justice Thomas writes for a five four court, there has to be a separate holding that the new rule is retroactive. So, you know, read most literally, that would seem to suggest that the only way you can benefit from a new rule in a second or successive petition is if after the new rule is handed down at time zero, there's a decision at time one that says, oh, and by the way, it's retroactive. Um, what and and, and, and am, I right to th- am I right to think that that second case that holds it retroactive will have to be on direct review? Because, um, because it, it, if, if it weren't, 
if it were or or in your first petition it or can't be petition. in a it can't be in a second petition because that person will not have been able to get permission that's right so so it'll either have to be a direct appeal um in which case there would be no question whether it's retroactive um a first petition which which could arise about and where retroactive it could be a problem or the the you know the thing that never happens an original habeas petition okay. um but what complicates Tyler, um, and you know, you guys know this better than anybody, um, is you know, there's something about a five-four decision when Justice O'Connor is the fifth vote, <laughs> <laughs> um, and O'Connor, as as was so often her way, writes a concurrence um, that is actually far closer to the dissent than the majority. Um, and what she basically says is, I agree with Justice Thomas, who wrote the majority opinion, that it has that the it has to be some other case that quote-unquote makes our new decision retroactive. She says, but I disagree that the other case has to come later. Right? So O'Connor says it could very easily be the case that in, at time zero and time one, we hand down decisions that say all substantive rules are retroactive. And then at time three, we say, you know, this new case is substantive. Um, and then by that logic, O'Connor says, we will have made the new case retroactive even though those cases predated the new rule. <laughs> Wait, so, so uh, maybe I'm confused, and this is, again, not my area, so forgive me my ignorance, but uh, the way that I read O'Connor's um, concurrence was that if a new, if the Supreme Court announces in a case a new rule of constitutional law that is, in fact, substantive under prong one of Teague, right, and, and uh, but it, even if it doesn't say that it's substantive, but it clearly is, that the logic of its holding even at time zero, the, the announcement of the new rule, would allow a court of appeals or a district court to conclude retroactivity. But she was I, I unsure about prong two. I think that's exactly what she's saying about substantive rules. Yes. Um, there's a huge fight about how that applies to procedural rules. Of course. Right. So I just want to make sure I have that right because I, yep. I, I think that all that matters is time T zero if you're in substantive rule if you're if you're it, it, uh, prong one of Teague, if you're in Gideon versus Wainwright land, where almost nothing is 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 a qualifying watershed, you need the watershed rule, analysis. Too. Yeah, right. then then there's still more to be decided. The Supreme Court has not yet decided retroactivity in the same way that when it declares the unconstitutionality of a law on 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 substantive grounds, it has basically because of the ruling in Teague declared the combination of those two cases declares uh, retroactivity. That's right. And so and so to to make a long story short, um, <laughs> which is you know difficult to do. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But for the better part of the last fourteen years since Tyler was decided, lower courts have generally understood the following sentence. Um, which is if the Supreme Court hands down a new rule of constitutional law that under Teganich progeny is clearly substantive, then the court has already, quote, made retroactive, unquote, that new rule in the prior cases, making clear that substantive rules are retroactive. <laughs> and, so it's a genus clear. It's a genus species relationship. It it's it gives it Teague gives you a framework. And, and says there is a genus of cases like this. That's right. The next one that comes along says, oh, here's another species in the genus. Yep. Another instance where we're declaring a new rule of substantive constitutional law that says this is not a reason you can imprison somebody. Exactly. Uh, so that there, so you've now satisfied that constraint in EDPA that if you want to get a second or successive petition and you go to the Court of Appeals and you ask for permission, as long as you do it within a year... Uh, of that 
Supreme Court holding, um, you're fine because they've made it retroactive. You get the benefit of it. Here, I'm I'm here to get permission to file in the district court my next petition. So, so let me just change, Joe. The only thing I would say is you should be fine, <laughs> right? But yes, that's the idea. That's the logic you just described. Yes, is that that's yes. what a person would do? Now, listeners, right. listeners, we're we're about to get to the three cases that are, or uh, is it four? I forget exactly. But uh, we're up to four. There are four cases out there, and 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 there's not much to say about them now. That most of it is in the setup, so we're almost done. So thanks for bearing with us through through all this. But uh, if you're thinking to yourself, "Gosh, this sounds really complicated and needlessly complicated." Uh, I think you're right <laughs> because <laughs> thanks, the, Congress. The easy solution is like, yeah, Congress basically lashed out, uh, mucked around, and and the Supreme Court is left to kind of interpolate pieces. And where the even if like the individual ideas are coherent, right. the interpolation is necessarily incoherent, right? So Congress says we don't want people filing all these secondary things. Uh, new rules seem to be okay under these circumstances. And all those things are okay. But when you try to interpolate between those principles, when you try to fill in the seamless web, if you're a Dworkinian judge, you get lots of irrationality. And the uh, this is even setting aside whether EDPA has a, a noble purpose or well, the reasonable way, purpose. Look, the way the I easy would... solution is to strike down EDPA. No, no, no. no. Yes. But, okay, that, that is a solution. <laughs> but I, the way I would describe the, the, the source of the difficulty is that – it, you you have to if you're the Supreme Court in a faithful agent sense you have to follow constitutionally valid statutes right you also have to adhere to the constitutional due process fundamental fairness constraint you have to try to do both and so Christian you're right in an instance where the statute is hopelessly defective you have to strike it down and therefore it's not going to dictate what you do in in the way you analyze the case but in the in the world where you think it's constitutional you have to try to get it all to work together and yeah, that's complicated and and sometimes that's going to be complicated you know sometimes you're going to get perfectly valid congressional schemes which are poorly thought out that the supreme court has to implement because it it doesn't have the authority right. to change it right because it's a policy choice this is a case where the where congress came in and tried to manage the internal workings of the Supreme Court in the internal workings of the courts and manage the flow of cases and information between courts right as to a procedure which kind of is fundamental to our notions of fairness in the criminal justice system the notion of a writ of habeas corpus predates the constitution as Scalia has been fond of saying before can, right? can, can I can I stick out a position somewhere between you guys <laughs> yeah please do um so I actually I, I, I agree with Joe, right, that in the in the abstract, it should be the court's jobs, especially where you have a statute to be the faithful agent of Congress. Um, I do think it's worth stressing that decisions like Tyler versus Kane, um, like Terry Williams versus Taylor, which is about the other principal part of EDPA, um, like Lockyer versus Andrade. I mean, there are there are a number of decisions where the court splits five to four or six to three about how aggressively to interpret these provisions of EDPA, um, where the dissenters aren't saying that EDPA is unconstitutional, where the dissenters are saying there's another way to interpret the statute that does less violence to our norms and that does less violence to you know, the important role of habeas corpus that's consistent with existing canons of statutory interpretation. And so you know, I read those cases as suggesting that the court is actually a little bit more than just a faithful agent in this context, that, that, that at least the conservative majority of the court in these decisions has been perfectly happy to read EDPA for as much as it's worth. And I wasn't trying to eliminate 
a problem. I was trying to relocate yeah. a problem, right? So they, even even if we all agree we're being faithful agents, people carry out faithful agency in a very wide range of strategies right. and, and so, views. And so my response is a pox on both your houses, right? <laughs> not, not 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 your houses, but but Congress and the Supreme Court in this context, and the Supreme Court especially because you know one of the really insidious things in my view that all these statutes do is they really minimize the power of lower courts. Um, both to create precedent and to allow for prisoners to take advantage of precedent. Um, and, you know, if you're the Supreme Court and you see Congress going after the lower courts with such reckless abandon, I would have thought that as an institution, your response should be to pr- be more protective of the lower federal courts um, than the Supreme Court has been, especially in this era of declining docket size in the Supreme Court, where the court itself is taking fewer and fewer cases every year and so has fewer and fewer opportunities to establish precedent of its own. Um, so when there was a when the attack when the constitutional attack on on edpa was was sort of framed and litigated and and you said that was felker against turpin yep so was the argument was there a separation of powers attack made at that time absolutely yes and and, and what did the court make of that so the court's argument. response to the separation of powers argument was we the supreme court have not been cut out of the loop you know yes congress maybe cut the lower courts out of the loop mm. but we're still here um, and so if there really was an appropriate case for habeas relief, EDPA may very well take away the power of the lower courts to provide relief, but it doesn't touch our power. You know, we're still here, so there's no problem. As so once again, matter. they're relying on that original habeas. Exactly. Precisely. And, and, and my reaction to that, guys, is, you know, as a matter of constitutional principle, um, and as I teach it in my federal courts class, that makes perfect sense. But at some point, the principle has to be reconciled with the reality, which is that the Supreme Court never grants this kind. And not only did not grant habeas relief, they don't even hear these cases. Um, and, and, and that's the tension that's really implicated by the current fight. So we, we have this. So the Supreme Court decides this case uh, earlier. Johnson. Uh, Johnson against the United States, uh, striking down a provision of the Federal Armed Career uh, of the Armed Career Criminal Act, which is a, mm-hmm. a federal act, uh, which increases uh it's a three strikes kind of law. So it increases your prison term if you've been convicted uh, prior of three violent felonies. Right. And, and it creates a statutory minimum of 15 years. Let's just say Johnson holds that a particular federal statute violates due process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a substantive holding or not. Right. That's a question. Is it a substantive rule or not? Um, and then we want to put it in our machine yeah, that the, we've already built here. The, to the do, upshot is they saying decide, I want to get out of prison because I shouldn't be here because I was convicted under something. That's, that's fair. We probably don't need to go into it. The upshot is they decided that uh, that 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 categorical approach of platonic ideals is too vague. You can't there's no way to know in advance whether. So it's void right. for vagueness, which right. is a branch of due process. So the Constitution uh, is inconsistent with that portion there, of but, that law. But, but there's a more important upshot. And I think this goes to where Joe is, is trying to push us, which is the day after Johnson is decided. There are now thousands of federal prisoners um, who have already served past the maximum sentence that they could have received in a world without the residual clause. Um, right. So in other words, the day after Johnson decided, there are automatically several thousand federal prisoners who, if Johnson applies to their case, should be released immediately. But but uh, consistent also with the kind of role play view that we started with a long time ago, uh, there are also many, many prisoners who 
would still have more to serve on their sentence, but would need to be resentenced and not well, just released. And, and indeed, right? and, and, and there, there are prisoners who either may have more jail time ahead of them or may not, depending upon how they're resentenced. I depending mean, on the results of that, yeah. Right, because one of the cases before the Supreme Court right now is a guy where the district judge said the sentence is ridiculous, but I'm bound to impose it because of ACCA. Um, you know, a judge who feels that way is probably not going to be inclined to give the maximum remaining sentence but for ACCA. Um, so, so here's the problem. So Johnson comes down. Um, you know, I think most people's reaction to Johnson is it's clearly substantive. Um, it is taking a particular um, range of sentences and of pr- uh, primary criminal conduct off the table as a matter of constitutional law. Um, and so the question becomes, can Johnson therefore be retroactively enforced by federal prisoners. Now, now, Steve, I can imagine a debate about that substantive part where we probe more into substantive and we probe more into that language about whether it criminalizes primary behavior that can't be criminalized. Uh, in the interest of time, we won't do it, but maybe maybe in a future episode we could explode that debate because I think there's enough to talk about for an hour there about what I, that I think means. so, but yeah. let, me just, let me just sort of make two quick points. Okay. Um, for Johnson to not be substantive, we'd have to change our prevailing definition of substantive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. But of more importance, I think, to the current conversation, the federal government, um, which, you know, let's be clear, is the party with the most to lose in these cases, is itself of the view that Johnson is substantive. Yeah. Um, and has never for a moment tried to argue otherwise. Um, so, right, so right off the bat, not only is there this new decision that appears to be substantive, but the nominally adverse party, that is to say the federal government, agrees. It, it, uh, just to say that the, the what, what's kind of complicated about it is that the, um, the, the nature of the thing which was struck down doesn't have that binary quality that is uh, that is so kind of um, cost containing for other for uh, retroactivity of other substantive rules. Right. So it's not like striking down a whole statute. It's kind of like an aspect of a statute which adds sentence, which means that it's necessarily just going to yield a lot of resentencing. So it, it, so it, has, it has characteristics. But, 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 no, no, look, but to be clear, like I agree with you. I would actually exp- – I would get rid of all this. But it's also yeah. we're saying as a matter of precedent, right? The Supreme Court has already said that decisions that simply take the death penalty oh, off sure, the table sure, 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 are sure. substantive. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's just uh, – we're I, I, I think we should skip over this because uh, <laughs> because in the interest of time, but I, I don't right. want to mislead listeners. There's an interesting theoretical question there. I agree. No, that I, agree I have a view on which – and I agree with you, but I didn't want to skip over the fact that – I didn't want to say that this is like obviously substantive from a philosophical point of view. I totally get that. And yeah. I think the fact that there's a even a, a kernel of that out there is part of what's caused this problem because right. you know Johnson's not the first new substantive rule to be handed down in the last 19 years um, and yet it's the one that's causing all this mischief and I think part of that's because there is some of this mm. you know angst about what it means for a decision to be substantive um, but so here's what happens so after Johnson um, you have a number of federal prisoners who go to federal court and who try to take advantage of Johnson and you get this now nine-way circuit split um, on whether Johnson can be enforced retroactively at least by second or successive prisoners so six different circuits um, have expressly authorized second or successive claims based on Johnson um, on the base, you know, be, because of their view that Johnson not only is substantive, but that Johnson has been quote made retroactive unquote by pre-Johnson decisions that make clear that any new substantive rule is retroactive. U- using um, using O'Connor's view, in, precisely in Tyler. 
Yeah. Precisely. So if you're um, a, so if you're in federal prison and yep. you think that uh, you're now being held unlawfully because this aspect of the ACCA is unconstitutional, and it's your second or third petition, you go, you ask the Court of Appeals for permission because EDPA says that's what you have to do, and yep. the Court of Appeals says yes, you have permission because Johnson applies retroactively because it's substantive. You asked within a year, and it's been made retroactive by these other decisions of the Supreme Court. And so then what happens is the circuit certifies your petition and sends it to the district court. And the district court basically will grant almost immediately an uncontested writ of habeas corpus or technically an uncontested motion for relief under 2255. um, And then the next day you walk out of prison. And, um, the, and the, the government doesn't disagree with this because they think they, as you just articulated, the solicitor general is of the view, at least we thought or we think, <laughs> is of the view that Johnson is a substantive rule. Not only that, Joe, but the solicitor general is also of the view that Johnson has already been made retroactive. Um, great. So, so you, right. so they're not going to object, right? When you that, bring that's this, cr- that's right. Great. So the only person who might object is a court of appeals, which says, "Oh, we don't think it's substantive, and or and therefore it's not re- retroactive." And there have been three. Um, so there are basically two different approaches that the three dissenting circuits have taken. Um, the strangest approach is the one that's been taken by the Tenth Circuit. So this is the Federal Appeals Court um, for. Oh, gosh, I'm about to screw this up. Colorado, Colorado, Wyoming, um, Kansas. Kansas, Um, yeah. Right, but not Nebraska. Um, (laughs) And and the the basic gist of the 10th Circuit decision in a case called Geiswein is that whether or not Johnson is substantive, it hasn't been made retroactive, notwithstanding Tyler. Um, And so second or successive prisoners specifically can't take advantage of it, even though first petitioners can. Um, Now, no matter what the court's rationale, if it turns you down and says you don't have permission, as you explained earlier, EDPA says there isn't any appeal from that judgment. Correct. So the Um, only thing you can do is go to the Supreme Court and say, hey, remember that original writ you mentioned in Felker against Turpin? I'm here for it. And that's exactly what one prisoner in the 10th Circuit by the name of uh, Juan Butler actually did. Um, And Butler's case actually was dismissed when the government acceded to a separate habeas petition he had raised in a different court. So So it got mooted out. It got mooted out. Um, The other approach, which is the one taken by the 5th and 11th Circuit, so basically, um, if you'll forgive me, the Confederacy, um, is to um, basically approach this problem um, as one of sort of a lack of clarity about whether Johnson really is substantive or not. Um, and that because it's just not sufficiently clear, we're not going to authorize relief. Now, what's weird about the Fifth Circuit's approach in this case called Williams is that it's not actually clear whether the Fifth Circuit was saying Johnson is not substantive or whether it was saying that Johnson hasn't yet been made retroactive. Um, And that matters because if the Fifth Circuit had said Johnson is not substantive at all, then a first petitioner could theoretically seek certiorari because he or she is not covered by EDPA. Um, And so that would be one way to get that question to the Supreme Court. Now, now Steve, Uh, just just to break in, you're you're about to move to the Fifth Circuit. So uh, you you don't want to say too much that would make the Fifth Circuit conclude that it's not altogether clear that your offer is not revocable. I don't think there's much doubt about my feelings. Um, um, in, no, that's in, true. In, in my writings to date, but that's true. You are not a stealth candidate, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think Governor <laughs> of Texas is on my future portfolio. Um, but I will say this. I mean, so so it's worth noting that there is now one pending petition 
from the Fifth Circuit for certiorari before judgment. So this is another way of sort of seeking expedited review in the Supreme Court. Basically, a prisoner who lost a first motion under Johnson in the district court um, who filed his notice of appeal with the Fifth Circuit and then went directly to the Supreme Court. That case is called Harriman. Um, and so that's one potential vehicle for the court to resolve this. But other than that, guys, there was no way for this issue to get to the Supreme Court because you couldn't appeal a denial of a second or successive claim. The government doesn't want to appeal any of its losses in the six circuits that have granted relief because it agrees on the merits mm -hmm. that Johnson is both substantive and has been made retroactive. And so the million-dollar question is, you know, how do you solve this circuit split without certiorari? Um, and that's why I mentioned original habeas before. There was this, you know, sub significant push, um, and I wrote an amicus brief on behalf of about a dozen, you know, original habeas scholars, I guess that's all of us, um, to get the Supreme Court to say, look, you've got to grant an original writ of habeas corpus here because you have no other vehicle um, for resolving this issue in time, right, within the one-year statute of limitations that EDPA creates for federal prisoners in at least the 5th, 10th, and 11th circuits to take advantage. Um, and that's sort of where we are right now is we're waiting to see what the court's going to do with all of these pending cases. Let's get the one-year thing just to just to be clear. So, so uh, under EDPA, um, even if it's substantive and even if it's been made retroactive, you can't ask for relief um, after one year from that having been the, made the case. Um, well, you can't you can't ask for relief more than one year after the new rule itself is articulated. So uh, that's what I meant. So, yep. um, so w once June whatever twenty sixteen rolls around and Johnson's more than a year old now, then nobody else can get. Well, I mean, it, they can't do it under. They could still maybe get an original writ. That that's why the yeah. that yeah. Um, well. Ah, there's so, there, there's so, an open there's an open question about whether EDPA statute limitations would apply to the Supreme Court. Um, mm. But putting that aside, there's also I mean the government has t I mean there's a lot that's wrong in my view with how the Solicitor General has briefed these cases. And one of the weird things the SG has done is it has alluded to its theoretical discretion to waive the statute of limitations without saying that it will. Um, yeah. And and you know it's basically holding out the prospect that in fact prisoners will be able to file Johnson claims after June 26th of next year without committing to allowing those claims to go now, forward. Just, I, this is my ignorance too. Would, are, are, would, those, are, are those EDPA stat, are those EDPA time limits not jurisdictional? Um, there's a fight about that. <laughs> yeah, I thought there might be. But I so even know. if the SG promised, it's not clear that the courts of appeals would be bound by that promise. True, although there is a Supreme Court case from a couple of years ago called Holland versus Florida, where the court did read at least one of EDPA's statute of limitations provisions as being subject to equitable tolling. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so if that's true, then presumably the, a government waiver would be grounds for equitable tolling. But <laughs> Yeah, and yep. all this mess. I mean, you, we have to remember there are there are people who who may sit in jail for more than a decade, uh, longer than they would based on a statute that the Supreme Court has already said is uh, unconstitutional in in so in in the in in so far as it is is causing their and that was an eight Johnson was an eight one decision. You would think that among eight justices, you would be able to find five who were eager to see the 
the point Christian just made, which is, well, look, you've got people sitting in jail who should not be there for well, another go, hot minute. But, 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 it, yeah. it's worth stressing. I mean, right. So the Solicitor General has been arguing in all of these cases that the court should wait for, quote, an appropriate vehicle, unquote. And I think what the Solicitor General is touching on is that it's in neither the Supreme Court's interest nor the Solicitor General's interest for the court to get in the business of routinely issuing original writs of habeas corpus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that the fact that the court hasn't done it in 90 years, um, you know, shows how rare it is. And if the court started to do it, a whole lot of weird stuff would happen. But if they um, don't do it, if they don't do it, then it calls into question the constitutionality of EDPA because the court has already cited original right. massively original calls it into question as, as a backstop that guarantee that, you know, secures and, and, the constitutionality and indeed, in his EDPA. concurrence in Felker, Justice Souter specifically said that if it would la- if it should later turn out that these other avenues for us exercising our jurisdiction, like original habeas, um, are closed, um, then the constitutional questions raised by EDPA would be open. And the last sentence of his concurrence says this could especially be the case if the circuit courts disagree about the scope of the gatekeeping standard, which is exactly what has happened after Johnson. Um, so, you know, we tried to argue in our in our amicus brief and a couple of the habeas petitioners have argued themselves that this is the precise scenario that Felker was talking about when it talked about how the court could issue an original writ of habeas corpus. And if they're not going to do it here, they're not going to do it at all. And that they're, they're therefore going to have to confront those constitutional questions. Um, it might be, <clears throat> excuse me, it might be that the court gets saved by the bell um, because of this petition for cert before judgment in Harriman. The Solicitor General just filed their response to that petition yesterday. Oh. Um, and on, I shouldn't say yesterday because this is running later, but uh, on earlier this week on Tuesday. Um, and what the Solicitor General said in their uh, response in Harriman was, you know, this is not a great vehicle, Supreme Court, but we understand if you want to use this vehicle to decide this question. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, so, you know, it's possible that the court is actually going to grant cert before judgment in Harriman and use that case to answer the Johnson question and then just dismiss all of the habeas and mandamus petitions as moot. Um, well, of course, but- they don't want that be- to be routine either. So I, this routineness thing is bizarre to me. Um, don't do it because if you do it... Um, and it were to become routine, it would be a problem. Well, we're not going to let it become routine. Well, I mean, you... And, and the, the complaint, the same argument could be made about granting certiorari before judgment at the Court of well, Appeals. Well, indeed, and if, you, and if you read the Supreme Court's rules, I mean, the language of Rule 11, which is the cert before judgment rule, has similar language about the extraordinariness of the remedy as Rule 20, which is extraordinary writs. Um, so at one point, I actually wrote a little email to some friends that was titled, you know, which extraordinary remedy is least extraordinary? Um, but I, I honestly think, guys, the Supreme Court is of the view, and I think the Solicitor General shares this view, that cert before judgment is, in fact, less extraordinary. Um, and that cert before judgment is especially appropriate um, in this context where time is of the essence. If you guys remember, when the court took the Booker case in 2005, um, the case where the court ends up striking down the mandatory part of the federal sentencing guidelines, they actually took another case along with Booker called Fan Fan, um, which was cert before judgment. And mm. it was the same concern um, about timing, that the court basically had to answer the question sooner rather than later, lest all these federal prisoners be serving potentially unconstitutional sentences. So, you know, I think we may have dodged a bullet this time around because of the weirdness of the Fifth Circuit's decision in the Williams case, um, because that opens the door to certiorari even before judgment um, in the Harriman case. But if the Fifth Circuit hadn't decided that, we'd be in the same mess. 
and we'd have the same question. Right. Yeah, but the mess is all right, so the the worries about you know the routine use of these extraordinary writs. I mean, imagine that Congress passes a statute that says uh, that um, no court can ever hear a successive petition. Period. And including you, the including the Supreme including Court. the Supreme Court, and and then the Supreme Court interprets that. Uh, only to apply to uh, 2255 and 2254 with the ordinary habeas and and that the the existence of the original writ and the All Writs Act uh, uh, basically mediate the problem. They, so, so uh, you know, if there's a really exceptional case, we can still hear it. Therefore, we will uphold this because it doesn't apply in cases where if it did apply, the whole thing would be unconstitutional. Well, then in or- if that's real, there are going to be a lot of cases where successive petitions are – are really necessary to vindicate to be consistent with the Constitution. And so the Supreme Court would have to resort to using extraordinary writs or the original writ uh, many, you know, in many instances. And that's just the predictable consequence of Congress's mucking around with the ordinary procedure where that ordinary procedure is so intimately tied to constitutional fairness, right? And so to me, like the the fact that the Supreme Court, that the Congress kind of severed the connection between the lower courts and the Supreme Court uh, with respect to these successive petitions, the predictable consequence of that is disuniformity, right? And, and, and this kind of mess. And, and to get to get to any notion of uniformity and uniform application, the Supreme Court is going to have to get involved again. I mean, I would have thought the answer to that question was yes, Christian. Um, but it's two thousand five. Uh, it's two thousand fifteen. Well, it's not two thousand five. Um, it's two thousand fifteen, right? So we're we're nineteen years past EDPA. The Supreme Court has received. By even a conservative estimate, you know, 25 to 30 serious, I mean, they received hundreds and thousands, but 25 to 30 serious, compelling applications for original habeas relief mm-hmm. in the last 15 or 20 years. Um, the Troy Davis case, the right. Warren Lee Hill case out of Georgia, um, right? And the court just doesn't grant relief ever, even where there is no alternative. And so I think there is a, you know, Felker, basically Felker's, um, Felker's chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah. Um, there's there's the title of this week's episode. Well, think, putting, putting aside Felker's chickens, call, I was going to call this episode the right vehicle, but we'll see. <laughs> um, I want I, I want to put aside Felker's chickens and ask um, <laughs> if Felker's chickens is a great if we yeah. were if the if Edpa were amended in the following way would would it make would it, would it relieve this particular uh, conceptual knot of difficulties um, that that you can take. Uh, you can you can seek cert uh, from a circuit court's denial of permission for your second or successive petition if there is a different circuit court that would have granted it, and that you and you can identify the case that that is the basis for your assertion that they would have granted it. Um, so <laughs> that so that you bring the court back in on this un- precisely on this uniformity point. I, I, I like that. Um, the you know, in, in a way, it already exists. I mean, so the other you know, we since we've been touching on all the ex, uh, uh, obscure ways to get the Supreme Court to do anything, the one we haven't touched on yet is the certificate process. Um, you know, twelve fifty four gives all of the courts of appeals jurisdiction to ask the Supreme Court certified questions. Mm. Um, it's twelve fifty four two, and you know, one of the petitioners in one of the post Johnson cases actually asked the 11th Circuit to certify to the Supreme Court the question of whether, the two questions, one, is Johnson substantive, and two, has it been made retroactive? 
right? Which, I mean, if ever there was a good certificate case, you know, the Supreme Court would just say yes and yes and go home. Um, but the 11th Circuit refused to certify on the ground that it didn't meet the 11th Circuit's own internal standards for certification because they were sufficiently convinced that they were right. Yeah, this is this is why I think it, the, that changing the statute to make your right to seek review doesn't turn on getting the current people who are saying right. no to you to agree with you. Right. Right. I think that's critical. That, But if you can point to another court of appeals that, that would have granted it, because they already did grant it to somebody else. Oh, no, listen. I mean, Joe, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think, I think relaxing the limits on the Supreme Court's certiority jurisdiction in that respect and in one or two others would go a long way toward ameliorating the constitutional problems and the practical problems caused by EDPA. Um, suffice it to say, I'm not holding my breath. And so the question becomes, until and unless that happens, you know, how do we convince the Supreme Court that they've got to actually, you know, issue extraordinary relief in at least one of these cases, not just because otherwise they'll have to confront these nasty constitutional questions. That's a law professor answer. Right. But because until and unless they issue such relief, there are thousands of guys in jail who shouldn't be. I mean, that ought to be the imperative here. And that's why, you know, the, 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 of all the things I found frustrating about the post-Johnson um, uh, landscape, the thing I found most mind-boggling was the Solicitor General filing brief after brief that says you should wait for a more appropriate vehicle. While the court's waiting, there are guys in federal prison who shouldn't be. And yeah, I don't know when right, we lost the right, track of... The right vehicle is the ride home. That's right. right. And, and I don't, <laughs> that's exactly right. And I don't know when we lost... I don't know when we lost sight of that, but it seems like we have. It's, yeah. it's just one of the many ways that the, um, that the rest of us disassociate from what it's like actually to be in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, did we do this on the show where we talked about um, this? Like, I I forget now. I think we did like early on, like, would you rather kind of thing? Would you rather uh, be in prison for six months or lose a hand? Didn't we talk about this like early on on the show? I don't recall that, but it's, um, it's, that's not a trivial question. I I, I feel like it's in a way though, it's a derangement that you have to, uh, in order to have prisons. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to mentally derange yourself into not thinking ever what it's like to be in one, hmm. or or you wouldn't have them. Really? Um, I, um, that's my guess. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're like you know, I think you have to have some incapacitation. That's actually my predominant theory right now uh, i guess i guess I, yeah. I so you know at the risk of being a fed courts nerd um yeah. in, in, in a you know on a podcast with with people who are actually intelligent there, there's no um, risk no risk of being a nerd on this show <laughs> no but 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 you guys actually like think about stuff and i just apply doctrine um you know it, it seems to me um that for all the conversations we have about yeah. prison reform about criminal justice reform about all the the one thing on which there should be just absolute complete agreement is that if you're in prison pursuant to an unconstitutional conviction, you should go home. <laughs> um, right, right. And if, you're in prison, and if you're in prison pursuant to an unconstitutional sentence, you should get a new sentence. And if that new sentence is less than the time you've already served, you should go home. Yeah. Um, right. And, Even and the most fire-breathing pro-prosecutor person has no interest in imprisoning people who don't belong there, well, like, they, under they, every interpretation of the law. But they do have an interest in saving costs. So if, if, if finding out whether you are in prison unconstitutionally requires the expenditure of social resources, like even the most uh, liberal among us has to admit social resources are not unlimited. Of course. It's just that it's just I tend to think that the social resources are there. Yep. But 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 systematically channeled away from the most vulnerable. 
right? I agree, but, but I guess Christian, here's yeah. here's my question, right? I mean, why has it taken all this all this costly litigation? I mean, not that I'm getting paid for my mucus brief, but you know, some people <laughs> are getting paid for this, right? Yeah. Why does it take all this costly litigation to establish something that should have followed from the plain text of Justice Scalia's eight one opinion for the Supreme Court in Johnson? No, I, I don't disagree. I, I don't disagree at all. And so I, why it, doesn't it become routine in the sub... Like, here's a question I had reading all these posts of yours yesterday and thinking about this a little bit last night. I don't understand. It, I mean, there's a way in which the court's failure to make this perfectly plain in the text of the Johnson opinion itself is an outrage. Maybe. Although, I mean, Joe, there's a question about whether under Tyler... I mean, so suppose that the... Suppose that at the, at the, on the last paragraph of his opinion... Justice Scalia drops a footnote, which, you know, he seldom does. Um, and the footnote says, by the way, lower courts, just to be clear, Johnson is substantive and we are making it retroactive. Right. I mean, you know, call that the Vladic footnote. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think that under Tyler, I don't think that footnote's enforceable because it's not a holding. Yeah, that, that's where we well, started. But he w- he, and he wouldn't say we're making it retroactive. He would say it's it's a substantive rule and and logic therefore dictates as a consequence of Teague and its progeny. He didn't sign on to O'Connor's concurrence in Tyler right. versus Kate. And, and, and here's the problem, right, which is that even if the court was 8-1 to in Johnson, the court is not nearly as harmonious on the question of, you know, just sort of how much discretion lower courts should have to interpret their own decisions and decide what they are and what they are not. Well, I'd be perfectly happy to see all nine of them dragged off to the nearest federal penitentiary so that they can <laughs> oh develop gosh. some harmony on this question, right? <laughs> well, but, but, they but, they but should Joe, have I, to, they, like, let them sit in jail while they develop harmony. Well, this is, you well, know, that's not so dissimilar from the kind of thing we've been talking about on this show before. Remember the standard we talked about for... Uh, for uh, convictions when we were talking about wrongful convictions. Right, would right? you be willing to... You, would you be willing to... Right. We're trying to put people in the position. It's like, Supreme Court, would you be willing to sit in jail <laughs> to, right. while you wait for the right vehicle for My this My highly question? outrageous <laughs> and inflammatory statement, which obviously was not meant literally or seriously, <laughs> was simply to underscore that, that the, the point you both were making before, which mm-hmm. is that this couldn't be more serious from the perspective of people who are in prison right now who are not lawfully being held. Who could not well, lawfully be put there today for that. Right. And, that, so, I think, and yes. so I think the question is, and so I, or at least they couldn't be sentenced to the same sentence. Right. And I think Correct. The, and, I think the, and I think the question is, assuming the court actually gets off of its, you know, butt um, and decides at its, you know, January 8th or January 15th conference to take at least one of these cases, and my money's on Harriman, the, the search before judgment, what do they actually do with it? I mean, do they, do they issue like a, a four-paragraph opinion that just says, Yes, Johnson is substantive, and yes, it was already made retroactive. Or do they actually use this as an opportunity to reflect more broadly on the problem that they've created? In time. Um, and, and I think that's going to, you know, that, I, I think if, if they grant cert before judgment to Harriman, if they don't do it summarily, I think that's going to be the really, you know, do the briefs focus on actually litigating the question presented? Or do the briefs try to push the justices to go beyond the, the, the sort of the, the retroactive effect of Johnson? To actually, you know, issue more clarifying instructions so to the lower courts. If you were going to clarify, if you were going to clarify, it would be clarify. Uh, it's, it would be to to the more rule like version of the O'Connor opinion in yep. Tyler, right? And so, and, are there five and, and, are there five and, votes for that? I don't know. Um, there weren't. In, I mean, well, there were well, tobacco. I mean, maybe we're losing people. The the, the rule like version of the O'Connor opinion would say that that if you're if the Supreme Court has issued a new rule and it falls within the first prong of Teague. 
the uh, substantive rule. Then uh, we have already made it retroactive. Then it is retroactive by, by virtue of the opinion and as of the date of the opinion declaring the new rule. That would be the rule-like formulation of the O'Connor opinion in Tyler and that was, and that would be And that would be super helpful. But, <laughs> um, but it's not clear that there are five votes for that because O'Connor is not there anymore. She was well, – and yeah. neither and not and neither is Stevens. Yeah. And neither is Souter, who wrote you know and so I mean Breyer was the one who wrote the principal dissent in Tyler. But I mean I you know, I think it's an interesting question whether, you know, Justice um, Kagan, for example, and I think most importantly Justice Kennedy, who signed on to the majority opinion and not the concurrence in mm. Tyler, um, you know, thinks that this is a big enough problem to warrant anything other than a very short per curiam decision that just says, you know, dear lower courts, those six circuits had it exactly right. Johnson substantive, we made it retroactive, shut up and go home and let these prisoners go home too. I just don't, I, I, yeah, it's very sad to me that this, that, that this Tyler question breaks on a conservative liberal dimension because i just don't if, if you're if you're the chief or you're justice alito or i just like what's the point well you know, let me uh, z- of, be, of being coy about let me zoom this. out a little bit more because i'd like to hear what what you and steve think in general about this and and this is another story of how so we've got this statute the edpa right and the and and edpa contains puzzles and creates new puzzles right <laughs> and we have all this brain power uh, among lawyers, judges, and justices devoted to solving this puzzle, which is never going to be coherently put together, uh, consistent with the Constitution in a perfect way. And in this, this just shows how some statutes regulating the flows of information between institutions can be costly, right? Socially costly. And, and to, and, you know, so when I read federal court, like when I read blog posts like yours, Steve, I mean, there's a part of me that always wants to kind of jump out of it and say, what a waste of time that we're getting people as smart as Steve. <laughs> my, my wife says the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but that we're getting people as smart as you to think about this rather than that. Like I, if, if I, if I could wave my magic wand. Because would, unless people as smart as Steve think about it, all hope is lost. I, would I mean, pe- this has become so complicated. Well, right. But I would have people like Steve creating on a not a blank slate but like it with the wisdom of experience and everything else figuring out what is the right way of dealing with this problem where it clearly is a, you don't want prisoners filing petition after petition right. after petition is it just the teague versus lane world is it right. you know i want people thinking about that and constantly rethinking about that like just like if you were if you're if you're a company trying to make great products or something like that and you're constantly thinking to yourself like how how does this suck how could it be better and if you're a bad company you're thinking well you know this is you know we we've got this out there that was a hit don't worry about it it's like a or or a music group which puts out one great album and then thinks it's great because it had that one great album instead of always thinking you know what this is a new day this is a new like and, and instead we're we have this one statute which frankly sucks and we have tremendous amounts of brain power in academia, courts, everywhere else, which is, are devoted to solving puzzles created by this statute where there's no rationality behind those puzzles. But can I, can I – I mean just while we're stepping back, I mean I think there's a larger problem here. And this goes to sort of Joe's point about liberals versus conservatives, um, you know, assuming we can call it the current progressive bloc liberal. Um, the – I think there's a larger story here that's not just about, you know, how much effort and energy is wasted on, on EDPA. It's also, I think, about the, the I think, very real um, war that's ongoing against precedent. Um, and it's a, it's a war that I think is, you know, was started by Congress, but that the Supreme Court has been complicit in. Um, and it's about sort of reducing the scope of precedent, reducing the ability of lower courts to make precedent, um, reducing the number of precedents. Um, and we see this not just in the habeas context. We, we see this quite powerfully in the qualified immunity context. 
um, and the Supreme Court's 2009 decision in Pearson, where it basically says that lower courts don't even have to answer whether a government officer broke the law if they if they hold that the law wasn't clearly established at the time that he allegedly did it. Um, and I think you know what makes this ideological, guys, is that you know the conservative judges see these as neutral rules that allow for the basically you know suppression of new constitutional law. Well, um, they, they see them as rules, right? Rather than rather than invitations to use in a combinatorial way precedent to basically make common law. That's right. right? And so and, and so I think in a very real sense, you know, everything we've just been talking about about EDPA is just a hyper-specific um, variation on a much broader theme where conservative judges are incredibly content to rely on procedural doctrines and rules that have the effect of suppressing the formation of new constitutional precedent. And, you know, progressive judges go back and forth on the matter and I think are, are inconsistent and don't realize, you know, even while they're fighting this particular battle, that they're losing the war. And that even though, you know, the Roberts court has not been especially proactive in constraining previously recognized constitutional rights, if anything, they've gone the other direction, um, thanks to Heller and Citizens United and cases like that, the Roberts court has been incredibly effective at constraining access to remedies and at constraining efforts to take advantage of even those new rules that are handed down. Um, and I think that's, what that's, Joe, what to me gives us an ideological bent and explains why beyond just, you know, we like prisoners, we don't like prisoners. You see the classic 5-4 lineup in a lot of these cases. Mm. Steve, as always, it's been awesome. Likewise, guys. Congratulations in advance to you on uh, all of thanks. your great new things. And, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know exactly how much your appearances on Oral Argument have contributed to your uh, great successes of the past year, but <laughs> I'd like to think it's not nil. Uh, no, but, but, but in all seriousness, congratulations and thanks so much for once again illuminating us on these topics. Likewise. And, and thank you. I mean, I think, you know, it, it says something that it takes an hour and a half to explain all this stuff, but I think that's, <laughs> that's, you know, that's the world we live in. And I think that's why. You know, it's hard to sort of get from the newspapers and even from the blogs a sort of, you know, 140 character version of why this is also screwed up. Although I think with 140 emoji characters, you might be able to do it. <laughs> if there are hexadecimal emojis. get to Steve, if you and I ever co-author a paper, I say we do it all in emoji. I love it. All right. Awesome. See ya. Take care, Thanks, man. Thanks, guys.